In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shinks Pod. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. We are both psychologists and this is a podcast all about psychology. Amy and I like to talk about psychological problems and disorders. In this episode, we're going to tackle one of our favourite topics, the depiction of therapists and psychologists on screen. Movies and television are where most people get their first introduction to the idea of a therapist and what happens in therapy. And how they're portrayed can impact on how people see therapists, where they seek out help and what they expect when they walk in the door. For us, watching therapists on screen gives us a good way to bring therapy alive to people who've never been there. We did this previously in episodes 50 and 51, where we played clips and then discussed each therapist in turn, and we've always wanted to return to the topic. As it's our third instalment on Sykes on Film, which I think technically makes it a trilogy, I was thinking we could, um, if we wanted to subtitle this episode, we could be Return of the Shrink, if we wanted to go for a Lord of the Rings or Star Wars vibe, or Two Shrinks Revolutions, if Matrix is more your speed. Although I was thinking maybe technically if it's the third thing, then maybe Two Shrinks Trinity, which is sort of a la Blade. So, um, Amy, any thoughts? Well, I kept on thinking about um, Die Hard, yep. so Shrinks with a Vengeance, <laughs> um, or Hannibal Lecter, Shrinks Rising. Yep, yep that works because I mean, he's, he's okay. a psychiatrist. Neither are particularly friendly. Yeah. So, so like many franchises do to prevent themselves from becoming stale, they introduce new characters later on in a series. So with this in mind, we've enlisted a special guest for this episode to help us talk about therapists on film. She's a presenter on the School of Movies podcast, and she's also a qualified person-centric therapeutic counsellor who works in the UK. And it's my pleasure to introduce Sharon Shaw. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. So we've been on School of Movies three times now, uh, discussing Inside Out, Zombieland and Mary and Max, where we provided a therapist angle on movies. And so we wanted to invite Sharon to help us focus on therapy that occurs in movies. So before we start, Sharon, could you tell us a bit about your background and orientation as a therapist? Okay, so as Hunter says, I'm a qualified person-centred therapeutic counsellor. Now, counselling isn't a medical qualification in the UK, so I don't diagnose or prescribe. It's often what people mean when they refer to talking therapies. Person-centred therapy, which is what I'm trained in, is based around the principle that we all have an innate self that knows what's good for us and what will help us strive towards fulfilment, but modern life and social expectations can often leave us feeling quite detached from this and without the necessary space and lack of judgment to actually listen to ourselves and, and hear what it is that we really need. So the aim with PCT is to give the client a therapeutic space where they can get away from external judgment, where they can feel that they are accepted and safe and listen to their own internal voice regarding what they need. So the format for this episode will be the same as previous episodes. We're going to play a clip from the film or TV show and then discuss what the therapist is doing. We'll play clips from six shows. Sharon has chosen three and we've chosen three. So Sharon, you're first on the list with the Thomas Crown Affair. Do you want to give us a bit of background as to who the characters are? 
I will. If you want to know a bit more about the film itself, Alex and I actually did a, an after-school club, uh, which is sort of our short versions of um, of film reviews for School of Movies uh, on the Thomas Crown Affair the other day when I'd watched it for preparing some notes for this show. And uh, the film itself is a remake of a film from the 60s. I want to say um, 68, sorry. yeah. That sounds about right. The original starred uh, Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. The remake stars Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. And the idea is that Thomas Crown, the central character, is a very wealthy businessman and he is uh, engaging in an art heist because he's bored. Um, he's <laughs> So he's organized a very complex way to steal a very valuable painting. And Rene Russo plays Catherine Banning, who is an insurance investigator who is assigned to the case to try and track down the painting. She works out very quickly that he's responsible for it. And the rest of the film is... Uh, her trying to get him to admit it and obviously locate the painting so that she can recover it for her employers and him trying to dance around the fact that as well as being very intrigued by her because he doesn't tend to interact with people who really get him much but he's also trying to avoid admitting that yes he stole the painting so it's, uh, it's very much sort of a back and forth between the two of them the reason that I picked it for this show is that the film is interspersed with therapy sessions between Pierce Brosnan and uh, his shrink, who is played in a beautiful bit of stunt casting by Faye Dunaway, who was obviously the uh, central lead in the original film. And they have three sessions between them where he talks or she talks about what's going on in this uh, situation and how his relationship with Catherine is progressing. I want you to talk about women. Mr. Crown? I'm sorry. Women. You've yet to talk about women. Well, I enjoy women. Enjoyment isn't intimacy. And intimacy isn't necessarily enjoyment. How would you know? Um... Has it occurred to you that you have a problem with trust? <laughs> I trust myself implicitly. Yes, but can other people trust you? Oh, you mean society at large? I mean women, Mr. Crown. Yes, a woman could trust me. Good. Under what extraordinary circumstances would you allow that to happen? A woman could trust me as long as her interest didn't run too contrary to my own. On society, at large, if its interests were to run counter to your own? Okay, so the, the uh, reason, one of the reasons that I chose this one is I really, what I really like about the uh, therapy sessions for this is that she has a very sardonic rapport with Thomas and it seems pretty evident that the therapeutic relationship they have has been going on for a while certainly long enough that she feels 
that she can be a little bit she's not sarcastic exactly but she she's a little bit more humorous with him than you would normally expect certainly in a in a new therapeutic relationship somebody to be she's obviously had the opportunity to kind of feel out the way he communicates and she talks to him in a way that um suggests she's confident it's not going to push him away which with somebody that you didn't know you might you'd, you'd hold back on that kind of thing because you don't want to say anything that's going to cause them to not respond mm, if, mm. if you're not familiar with the way they communicate i like the fact that uh, in this session particularly she's got quite open questioning technique although it's not it's not entirely questions she's not all open questions she makes quite a few expressions of opinion or statements that she then seems to kind of invite him to elaborate on and expand on and he seems a little bit distracted and is responding to this with quite direct statements that seem calculated to shut down negotiation which you can almost imagine him bringing in from his business transactions and she won't let him do that she won't let him run away by sort of closing it down with that she insists on mm. expanding and and you know bringing in things that he's going to you are going to talk about this in a in a more open way she's also got quite a, a maternal intelligent air about her and it becomes a bit more apparent through the other sessions but there's a little bit of a parallel between the way she interacts with him and the way Catherine played by Rene Russo interacts with him now obviously part of that is is kind of deliberate because she played the same character in the original movie but it also gives the sense that he's chosen a therapist who relates to him the way he wants a woman he's in a relationship with to relate to him which is quite an interesting thing to expand on they don't explore it in any great depth in this no. but i think if it was if it was a therapeutic relationship that i was involved in that might potentially be something that would be worth looking at and, and examining further down the line yeah, absolutely. And you see that in therapy quite often that the relationship that the client has with you mirrors relationships that they have elsewhere. And, you know, so it's quite interesting to be a therapist and, you know, try and figure that, that relationship out or figure out, you know, like, why is it that they treat me like this? Is this, is this, and you, know, you can often actually asking questions around that, I think, uh, can yield the most insight you can, you can get from somebody. I don't know, like my my reaction when I first looked at this is like, oh, like I'm like I'm never quite sure. Like I'm always amused by this type of questioning. This like, oh, let's talk about women. Like, does this therapist have this kind of you know checklist of of questions you've got to check off? You know, like I, I'm never quite sure. Like, is this real therapy? Is it not? And then, but then I think it is interesting because he is this narcissistic entitled person, and I think you would have to definitely approach him. Approach someone like that in a in a different way. Otherwise, they won't treat you. You know, you won't have any game. You won't have any. Mm, yeah, yeah. And again, because he's this this character who's used to being uh, on top in business, because he's very used to being the centre of attention when negotiations are going on in that sphere of his life. Unless you could meet him 
on at least close to the level he's on. Mm. It's almost like he would disregard anything that you brought to him if he couldn't see you as at least approaching being an equal. Yeah, yeah. As a therapist, you're, you're responsible for yourself. You know, he's got no power over you, even if he's more powerful in other areas. It's like, you know, well, I'm the therapist and, and this is what I do and and you can't control me and that kind of stuff. It's kind of, it's always kind of quite fun. I think she's quite cheeky, which is quite enjoyable. Mm. Amy? She is, It's yeah. it sort of got a flirtatious cat and mouse kind of vibe about it like she's direct but she's playful as well and it's like they're both testing the boundaries of where the conversation can go and who's going to have control over it yeah it's quite interesting and it it like I said to you Hunter when we first watched this I'm kind of like it's not a dynamic that I would be comfortable in as a therapist and I mean Perhaps that's why I don't work with adults as part of it um, or people with sort of narcissistic traits in general. As a social conversation, it sits okay, but as a therapeutic conversation, mm. it kind of makes me uneasy and I can't put my finger on it. I think it's, good. it's it's a tennis match. I, I feel like they've gotten juice, you know, kind of like the advantage or something like that. And I think, I think... probably my discomfort is with the some of the later scenes as well, probably more than than this one but we'll get to that yeah but it, yeah it definitely does expand into that realm I think part of that is that with a client whose life and, and obviously it's it's set up this way for, for dramatic purposes and obviously this is some of the difficulty with looking at, at therapy on screen um, but when when somebody's life is sort of superficially perfect if that's an image that they've bought into very strongly it can be really tricky to get them around to looking at what's actually wrong. Mm. And if they're resistant to talking about what's actually wrong, then you start getting question marks around, well, why are you in therapy in the first place? Mm. If everything's fine and you don't need to change, then why are you here? And, mm. and to kind of work your way to a level where someone's comfortable talking about that, with people who do have this kind of narcissistic shell of this is me to the world and I'm perfect, um, it, it can be really difficult to get through that sometimes and actually get them to any kind of depth to, to examine what, what might be making them feel uncomfortable or, or uneasy in a way that they can't quite put the finger Yeah, and they keep coming back and you're kind of like, why, why are you coming back? We're not getting anywhere. Uh, we're not getting yeah. any deeper. But then it's always interesting to be able to crack through. So shall we listen to a later session that happens between them? Let's do that. What's happened? Happened? Whenever I talk, while you're tuning out what I say, the corners of your mouth go up. You're enjoying something. It's not me. What is it? An entertainment. Very little entertains you, so I can easily guess. A worthy adversary? Hmm? Did someone swindle you? Thoughts on this bit? I think uh, with this one, what I find intriguing about the, the this second session is that we cut to a slightly wider shot, which means that we can now see that the setup of the room they're in is a little bit more formal than you might have first assumed. Now, I don't know if this is how all of their sessions are conducted, but she's sitting behind a desk and that's something that uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this later when we get into sort of the broader context of when women are portrayed as therapists but the 
from a person-centered perspective, you would almost never have a session where mm. you've got a desk in between you and the client because it's an immediate barrier. So if this is something that she uses every session, if this is how they sit all the time, then how does that affect their dynamic? Does that contribute to the fact that they have this sort of more social conversation, we're at arm's length kind of interaction? Um, if it's something that she's only using for this session, is there a reason for that? She says about uh, whenever I talk while you're tuning out what I'm saying, is is it that he's not they've not really been interacting much so she's decided to go and sit at the desk and get on with some paperwork while he's sat there she, she know, looks like she's just dollar. she looks like she's filling out a tax or something you know she's just sort of does, quietly yeah. quietly like it making the like it's anything to do with him <laughs> oh are you still here oh good yes charging by the yeah, hour absolutely which is which is kind of intriguing because again is she turning it back around on him fine if you're going to ignore me I'm going to ignore you so is that is she bringing that cat and mouse thing into it again with a little bit of deliberation the the fact that she picks up on a worthy adversary being the only thing that would potentially entertain him again speaks to how much about him she has managed to glean from their relationship and and how she perceives him I think this does feel a little bit like she's potentially throwing up walls. It works in the context of the story, but from a therapeutic perspective, what she's effectively saying is you're in such a position that you can't be threatened. Somebody swindling you would be fun as opposed to a threat or a challenge or something that would potentially cause you harm. Um, and I don't think you, you you wouldn't see that in a real therapeutic relationship, I wouldn't have thought. Somebody, you know, making assumptions about what is, is potentially going to cause somebody genuine pain is one of the easiest ways to push them away. So that, I think, would probably be a little bit... Uh, that, that would be a bit of a hasty thing to say in a therapeutic session. Well, yeah, look, yeah, potentially. But then also, like... Maybe to take the other thing is like I certainly had uh, an experience where I was saying to a manager, she said, oh, how are you going? And I said, oh, you know, I'm just really busy. You know, I've got all this stuff going on. And she's just like, you love it. You love it, Hunter. You know, and so, and, you know, kind of really just, you know, pairs you straight back down, you know. And I think, you know, and, and they you know, she sort of has this look of this sort of older sister type or, you know, or maybe even a maternal look of, of her kind of like, you know, really come on, you know, this is the only thing that would ever get anything going on. So it's sort of, and he, he and, I, and I, the only reason I sort of think about that is that he, he's enjoyed by the fact that she then spars with him, like, you know, and then I think, you Absolutely. know, and it'd be interesting to have seen what the next bit of the conversation was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think we are at a slight disadvantage with this one because the sessions are so short and yeah. there's so few of them. It's um it is very much sort of tiny little pieces. One thing um that I really like actually which isn't isn't in the therapy sessions itself, but when Thomas starts to interact with Catherine, uh, particularly after they've had sort of three or four interactions, you can tell that he is actually picking up observational tactics from his therapist because he is observant about Catherine in a way that she's not observant about herself. He picks up on the fact that she's afraid of being trapped quite quickly. And that, to me, suggests, given that, as we've already said, he's got a bit of a, an, elite, an elitist, narcissistic way of, of dealing with the world, I don't think being able to make that observation about somebody else 
it would come naturally to him if he hadn't already had extensive therapy and and knew how to look for the things that are sitting underneath Mm. Mm. And I think I think maybe also you know he recognizes someone who's very similar to himself. Um, mm. You know, the, the the two traumatized kids in the playground, you know, find each other and become friends. You know, that that kind of thing. Yeah. Should we go to the next clip? Oh dear! Peter Pan decides to grow up and finds there's no place to laugh. <laughs> the only sad part is. If she's anything like you, she won't know what she's lost until it's gone. This one really pushes my buttons. Mm-hmm. Explain. <laughs> Go on. I, yeah, I'm. I'm so uncomfortable with it. I think what gets me is that it feels like, you know, yes, she's she's challenging him or raising, you know, similarity that she's noticed, but. It feels like her laughter is about her own enjoyment and more about sort of counter-transference stuff than about what's going on for him or highlighting something that's happening that's like a, well, you're being treated in the same way that you treat other people kind of a thing. It's sort of, there's a nastiness undertone there that kind of doesn't sit well with me. Mm, Yeah. I think I, because I interpreted the, when she laughs, when she, by the time she gets to the end of the laugh, she's crying. And yes, you can see that as she's just laughed so much that she's made herself cry. But I, I do feel a little bit like there's an element of she's, she is feeling genuine at the very least pity, if not empathy for him Mm. um, at this point. And that the, the reaction that she's having i mean i i agree with you it's it's something that does make me feel like you like one of the things you never ever ever say to a client in a session is i told you so it just just no just no no that doesn't happen even but when the, you want to <laughs> even when you want to yes especially when you want to. <laughs> <laughs> but the i i do think that the kind of the authenticity of her response does again kind of em- uh, emphasize that they have a relationship that she feels can take that but I do think it's it, it is kind of overstepping the boundaries of self-disclosure and while as a as a therapist you don't want to have like somebody tells you something about a great deal of of pain or something that's made them upset you don't want to have a completely blank response it's mm. not about neutrality but part of the the whole non-judgmental and acceptance thing is that you can respond to them in a way that is not extreme you let them talk about the situation that to them feels very kind of out there and 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 intense and almost modify that and and bring it down a level so that it feels a bit more safe and a bit more okay maybe this is something i can handle if this person can respond to it without going completely over the top then maybe things aren't quite as as uh, unbearable as i was feeling in the first place but i would kind of tie this in a little bit there is there is another session that they have in between this which is a bit of a an odd one because he's dressed a lot more casually than he does in most of these sessions he's wearing his suit um and there's a session before this where um he's just wearing regular clothes and she said to him you've met somebody who's very like you don't think that's going to turn into a rewarding relationship and so that's why this this one feels very much I told you, 
you didn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's um, I, I completely see where you're coming from with that, Amy. It is a little bit um, a little bit of a strain, and I don't think yeah. we see them in another session after this. No, do we? no. You, you do you do so wonder because it's he... entirely possible that he went. That's it. We're done. <laughs> I think he was, he was going to abscond with the painting, I think, at that point. So, you know, it's quite possible he's... Because he, he doesn't look very happy. But then, you know, the the idea of therapy is not necessarily to make your clients happy. Like, it's often actually to bring negative things up to the surface. And this is a guy that doesn't... You know, he controls all that, all that negative stuff and um, doesn't bring it up to the surface. And, you know, so... I could sort of see how it could be therapeutic, but I do, I do, I do get the sense of just like she's just so frustrated with this guy. He's not giving him, giving her anything, and then she's um, and she's just fighting. It's like, oh, there's two of you, and you're exactly the same. Look at that. It's kind of the intensity of it, I think, where it switches. Like I've certainly um, smirked or raised an eyebrow at a client when they've said something or kind of made made a comment that's had a sort of sarcastic or jokey vibe with the same kind of function but not to that kind of intensity yeah. and i think it's it's yeah the the cackle that really pushes it <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely i think the um one impression that I get from their interactions, and this is a this is a reading of the movie rather than a reading of the therapy. <laughs> so this is why I'm putting my movie hat on now. Um, is that because we have this sort of echo of the the original? There was a part of my brain that was going, "Is this the character from the first movie?" And she's now gone into being a psychologist. And what's coming out of this is, as you say, Hunter, the counter-transference, she's getting a whole read on, oh my God, this is my whole history playing itself out again. Yeah. <laughs> could be, could be. All right, Amy, we're going to go to Ozarks. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So have you either of you watched this TV show? I've watched a little bit. I haven't yeah. seen any of the show. I've, I've watched the, the clip yeah. that you sent, but I haven't seen the show as a, a, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this show is about a family who have been laundering money for a drug cartel and they move to the Ozarks to try and escape the danger. And the clip comes from season three when they're anything but removed from the money laundering game, if anything, they've gotten in deeper. And the couple at the centre of the story have gone to couples therapy. We've got the therapist is Sue Shelby and the clients are Marty and Wendy. I'm scared! I'm fucking terrified, actually. Ooh, those are strong feelings. Let me tell you why you're scared, Wendy. It's because you don't believe in your husband. Yet I have kept us safe this entire... Safe? For some reason, you think that you're somehow in, uh, incapable of... You, you think of we're safe? I do think that we're safe. Ha! Want to help me out here, Sue? Yeah, that'd be great. Can you explain to her that everything that I do is for the family? Oh, and can you explain to him that that is complete bullshit? I think that the two of you are doing a terrific job at talking this out. Really? Because I feel like we're going in circles. So please, weigh in. You gotta have something to say. I do, actually. What does it say about a marriage when a husband and wife both try to bribe the therapist? You're both paying me off. There, I said it. What the 
the fuck is wrong with you? What the fuck's wrong with you? You did the same goddamn thing. Once, once, once. Because, because I was worried when you came back with that crazy idea, and, and I wanted Sue to work a little harder. You people don't make it easy for anybody. Just shut the fuck up, Sue. No, have have you been doing this the entire time? Are are you that insecure? No, I'm that ignored, Wendy. You want to know why I'm bribing this woman? It's because you're completely incapable of listening. This is my only chance to convince you that what you are doing is putting us in danger. First, you force us to stay here. Second, you dig us in so deep we're never... So I was interested in this one because you don't get to see couples therapy very often on TV. And, I mean, ethically, she's gone so far out of bounds of of what you should do. And then in exposing that ethical violation of taking bribes from both of them she actually starts to get some movement. Like there's an element of it that a classic family therapy technique of bringing everything that's hidden and unsaid to the surface and then letting things play out. Mm. But what she's brought to the surface is something so problematic that, yeah. But I mean, that's the role of yeah. therapist, right? It's to bring the problematic thing up to the floor, you know, like it's, it's to bring it up to the surface. Uh, it's like you guys, and neither of you are doing any work. And you both, you both clearly, she, one of them says, oh, you know, I want to get the therapist to work harder. It's like, well, like, it's not the therapist's job to work well, harder. If they're, if they're bribing her, if they're both bribing her, then clearly they're both trying to manipulate the therapy from the outside in, yeah. which is like the complete antithesis of what the purpose of therapy is. Yeah. Mm. So they're, they're not, uh, one could argue they're not really engaged with the process. <laughs> If that's what they're trying to do. But the, the the one thing that kind of red flagged me on this immediately was, hang on a minute. In I, I don't know what the, the um, guidelines are in Australia, because I know it's slightly different everywhere. But in the UK, as a therapist, there are two situations in which you absolutely have to report it to the authorities if, if it gets brought up as, as something that's happening. One of them is anything endangering a child, and the other one is money laundering. <laughs> It's anything involving drug trafficking or, or, you know, heavy finance crime. So um, it's interesting to me that that she would, one assumes that she's aware of what's underpinning all of this. Um, There's there's a phone call that has to happen somewhere. (laughs) I think it's about to come out from memory that they've skirted around it and talked in in euphemisms. But she's also lives in the community and knows that they've got a lot more money than they should have and i think in the the order of things the wife of the couple has said that they need to go and get couples therapy and then he starts bribing her first and then has been bribing her for quite a while and then laura linney's character then goes well i'm gonna bribe her for the purpose of getting the movement that i need in this session yeah and then yeah, yeah, that's when it explodes. I don't. I don't think we've got the same uh, regulation. It's, diff- it's all about you know hurting someone else, hurting themselves, hurting someone else. Those things, and and obviously like any anything to do with endangering children, but other things not so much. Mm. I, I really, I, it's, it doesn't work so well because the audio, but it really looks like a therapist room. There's lots and lots of space, and like chairs are all sort of set apart. There's lots of knickknacks as well. And I just, you know, and there's... It's a very busy room, visually. Uh, it's sort of busy, but, but still, it's sort of interesting. Like, it's sort of this, this and, and then you can hear the... I, I just caught it then with, the, with the, the grandfather clock ticking in the background. I thought, oh, that would be great in a therapy room. I'm usually doing, you know, assessments by a, a hospital bed at the moment. So it's a little bit, a, a little bit different. The, um, I mean, I think she, she's good just sort of redirecting back to 
what's going on. And I, I, and I think I'm a big fan of therapy process and just sort of the micro skills of, of therapy and you know, learning how to be that confident. She's very confident and just sort of simply going about her business and just kind of like, oh, well, what's happening here? I think she's quite good. She does have the knack for kind of bringing things into the centre putting them down between the two of them mm. and then kind of fading into the background yeah. there's a as, as that clip progresses i did notice that she once they get going at each other she kind of doesn't bring very much more to the proceedings um, which on the one hand it can make the environment feel quite tense and potentially unsafe but on the other hand the fact that she is there that there is a third party there that they're going to be aware of means that 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 conflict between them that does need to be brought out and does need to be examined can be done in an environment where if it was just the two of them at home mm. it would have more potential to become potentially risky situation yeah or that or that or they wouldn't stay in the moment right they, they might move out of the moment quite quickly yeah so, which is i think is one of the things you know people don't sort of in, in therapy it's about staying in an adversive experience um, yeah. long enough to get yeah. some change and you would need a therapist to do that and same with couples and things Sharon why do you think why do you think we often see therapists portrayed as doing unethical things it's one of the things that always kind of comes up for me like when I'm watching stuff like it's as opposed to say you know medical doctors in film or TV you don't really sort of see that quite as much yeah I think honestly it, in part it's to do with the drama because the, the a therapist sitting down and, and doing a very calm session or where they kind of help somebody to feel quite soothed about their circumstances again not necessarily in a you've got to make your client happy kind of way but just to enable them to get to a place where they do feel safe and able to start looking at the issues that are really bothering them that wouldn't be particularly dramatically interesting <laughs> unless unless somebody felt a very strong connection with the circumstances that were being discussed in which case they've got a kind of a personal interest in in seeing that situation resolved in a in a much more positive way but i think the with regards to sort of the the difference between as you as you point out medical doctors aren't sometimes they're shown as being unethical but usually if they are that'll be the point of the story whereas i think there is still this element of anything supporting mental health is still seen as a little bit of the poor cousin it's not considered to be as important it's not considered to be as vital to a functioning society as medical support would be or, or you know surgical mm. support in particular we we think of those as the big dramatic interventions that save people's lives but mental health interventions can be that important as well if mm. somebody's in a situation where they're potentially feeling suicidal then talking to the right person at the right time in a very calming reassuring way can be the thing that holds that person back from the brink mm. and you've then you know you've done as much to save somebody's life as someone who's operated on them in a in a surgical room yeah 100% but it's not it's not as um it's not as dramatic to present that in a, 
um, in a, a movie or a, a TV show. I think that's possibly why it doesn't tend to be presented. Yeah, that. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I think I think there's the drama bit. I mean, I, I always worry that maybe a lot of writers have just gone to bad therapists and that's been their experience. Um, but I mean, I like there is there is also the fact that do bear in mind that from a social perspective, Hollywood in particular, TV maybe not so much because it's a bit more nimble, but Hollywood tends to be about a decade and a half maybe two behind how things actually are in mm. in terms of social progression and and um certainly organizational progression in how medical and mental health models are administered i mean i i would certainly say you're only just now starting to see mental health presented in tv shows in a way that i would consider to be yeah this is pretty much how they do it now yeah. mostly they're talking about how it was done in the 90s early 2000s yeah, yeah. i mean it's, it's, it's interesting because like working in a hospital i'm exposed to a lot of doctors and and other professions and psychologists particularly we like some of the other professions just look at us and kind of go wow you guys your ethical responsibilities you know the way that we write our notes and and the way that we document and the way that we wouldn't you know some doctors will prescribe themselves or prescribe their friends you know antibiotics or whatever it's like you know the the equivalent as a, as a therapist we wouldn't do like it's sort of we our rules are really really strict it's almost but like you don't see that portrayed you know because like i think you say it's, it is a bit boring i guess but yeah i wonder as well if it's a general misunderstanding about therapy and a feeling of well, if you're sitting in the room with someone describing your innermost thoughts and feelings, then it must be a personal relationship or it must have more connection or mutual sharing or whatever for that to actually function. And so how can you possibly be so boundaried and have all of these rules? Because that's not how it works when you share something with someone. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess I'm thinking about people who haven't been to therapy before and are surprised about confidentiality or are surprised that I can't tell them where I live or, you know, we can't have a session over a cup of coffee out at a cafe. There's kind of a intimacy there that is why we have so many rules, but perhaps people who haven't been to therapy or haven't been exposed to it don't realise it. And then that's why they portray so many sort of blurring of personal mm. lines and mm. whatever. It's only when, when, though, when therapy goes wrong that you then sort of really realise why those rules, which might seem incredibly pedantic, are actually really, really important. I think there's possibly an element of how therapists are trained and what we're taught in the early stages, which is to do with the fact that because what we're administering is or can be vague it's not hard and fast it's not cut and dried if you do something wrong as a doctor as say somebody who's prescribing medication and something happens to somebody because you wrote out the prescription wrong and they took too much then that's a fairly cut and dried thing you wrote it out wrong therefore that person is is ill or you know worst case scenario that person has, has passed away if you do something wrong as a therapist and it leads down that road. There is no hard and fast, here's the thing you did wrong. So you've got to be able to know in yourself that you did the absolute best you could in that situation in order to get the best outcome for the client. Shall we move on to the West Wing? Oh, our favourite therapist. Yeah. Can, can I introduce? <laughs> the, yeah. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> you know you want to. to. <laughs> oh, I think we... we, we so, 
So this is Dr. Stanley Keywet. He, he, we talked about him in the, on the previous Sykes on Film thing where he was doing a, having a session with the president. I think actually chronologically this, this scene comes before that and he is coming to assess Joshua Lyman, who's the Deputy White House Chief of Staff in the West Wing. So it's a show about the president and, and the US political system before it all went kaput. And Josh was shot. There was a, a shooting where someone tried to shoot the president and he was shot and he's been exhibiting some some symptoms and they've organised this uh, doctor to come and see him. Hi. Hi, Josh. Hi. I'm Stanley Keyworth. This is Keith Atras. Josh Lyman. Hi. Do I call you doctor? Sorry? Is it doctor Keyworth? Oh, whatever you want. You can call me Stanley if you want. And doctor, uh, I'm sorry. Trask, but it's not doctor. I'm not a psychologist. Katha is uh, training as a traumatologist. I was wondering why there are two of them. Katha's training. You don't mind, do you? No. What happened to your hand? I, uh, I cut it putting down a glass. It broke? Yeah. The glass broke? Yeah. Well, um, let me tell you a little about who we are. Sure. We're from ATVA. Yeah. That's the American Trauma Victims Association. Yeah. We're commonly called in by the government to work with trauma victims. I'll give you some examples. The uh, pipe bomb at Lancaster Middle School, we worked with the parents and the kids. Tulsa, Hurricane Beth, the Chatham Fire, the Iowa Tornadoes, the FBI raid in Rock Creek. So you are familiar with us? Dr. Keyworth, I'm the Deputy White House Chief of Staff. I oversee 1,100 White House employees. I answer directly to Leo McGarry and the President of the United States. Do you think you're talking to the paper boy? No. In your wildest dreams, did you imagine that I would walk into this room without knowing exactly who you are and what you do? No. Then why did you lie to me right off the bat? Josh... She's not here training. As a matter of fact, she is. I read briefing books every day on subjects considerably more complicated than ATVA. She is here training in trauma therapy. Yeah, but that's not why there are two of you. No. That's not the reason why there are two of you. No. I get up, go to the bathroom, go to my office, answer the phone, one of you watches me. Yeah. Stanley, you got off to a bad start. Yes, I did. Yes, you did. Let's start again. You gonna lie to me this time? Nope. You gonna lie to me? Haven't yet. Really? Yeah. How did you cut your hand? You're not talking to the paper boy either, Josh. Oh, I love that scene. Chills. <laughs> Wait, uh, I, I could wax lyrical. Who wants to go first? I'll, 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 I'm, I'm conscious. I, I think we should let you go first, Hunter. On this. Uh, <laughs> I know I picked podcast. it, but I, I know this is one of your favourites. Uh, I think. I think. Uh, what do I like about it? Uh, I think. I think. Just, like I was just watching him just get so absorbed just by that clip. You know, I think there's a real, in, really good way he engages. You know, and it's just building on the conversation we had before, the boring stuff of therapy, I'm introducing myself and then the client brings out something that you then have to deal with sort of in the moment before you've even kind of got through the fine print. And I think it's really interesting the therapist holds his ground. You know, he, 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 he takes responsibility. He says, yeah, we did get off on a bad start. 
and he doesn't doesn't sort of engage in the no well you know and excuse it but he does actually sort of say well you know like i didn't lie like like he he, he said well, he doesn't actually say that out loud but he sort of says no no she's here training but it's like he's like you realize he's sort of a lying by admission so but yeah, so I, which I, I think is kind of quite good. He's, he's, and then I just do like that kind of like calling him out right at the end. So saying, well, like, you know, I know my stuff, mate. And uh, you may be smart, but I'll, I know what I'm doing. And I think I just, I really, you know, that, that, that firmness which, and a steadiness, which I think, I think as a therapist, I like quite like to have of uh, I, can, I can take what you've got and I'm going to do that. And it can come across as abrasive, but I think it also can be very reassuring. I think when it's when it's particularly appropriate to the client as well, that that mode of this is almost one of the elements where what we talked about the the transference of of seeing your therapist as as holding a relationship to you that they don't because they remind you of somebody that you do have a relationship with that can be if it's handled in the right way beneficial because it it gives you the opportunity to reframe how your feelings are about that relationship in a safe environment and as the as the episode progresses as it progresses we we do start to see that when Josh is feeling particularly under pressure in his current state of mind he becomes very childlike and what he almost seems to be reaching for is um, a a dad or an older brother somebody who can kind of give him boundaries that at the moment he can't hold for himself Mm. so meeting him in that first opening uh, statement with observing how he behaves and how uh, observing how Josh behaves and how he puts himself across the fact that Stanley then kind of he matches that speech and behavior with an equivalent level of power because that will in this circumstance that will reassure this client that will make him feel like if if Josh is put in a position where he feels like he's the smartest person in the room nothing's going to happen because he's just going to shut down and go right well there's no point in me engaging with any of this he needs it's like we were saying before he needs to feel like he's talking to um somebody who is is equally as um, aware as he is otherwise he's not going to see the point mm. it's interesting that the you know he knows his credentials he knows what he what he does and you know he's aware of his background he's looked into him before he's come into that session mm. and yet that's not enough to establish where he's at he actually he needs Stanley to be able to meet him where he's at and to hold firm with warmth before he actually takes him seriously before that he's dismissive why he gets away with it and what he does the entire time is that Stanley's constantly warm even when he's firm yes like he's calling him out on his shit but it's with a warm tone and with a sense of like I can you know like Hunter said I can take whatever you throw at me I'll still be here we're just going through this process. Yeah, he's got a very measured way of speaking. And um, there's a moment a little bit further down the line where there's a knock at the door, somebody bringing the coffee in and Josh like leaps three feet in the air. It just absolutely Mm. makes him jump. And Stanley notices that immediately and his response is reassuring. It's only the coffee, it's okay. I was supposed to look into his personal records to figure out why he... It's the coffee, Josh. 
yeah, it's, you've got the what we call hypervigilance, which is a classic mm. PTSD symptom. Shall we? Absolutely. Shall we go to the next clip, Amy? Yep. So this is a bit further along, and uh, the interview has been progressing throughout the day, and he's been getting him to recount a whole lot of symptoms and and things that have been going on. What was the diagnosis? I'm sorry. You said you diagnosed me after five minutes. What was the diagnosis? You have post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, that doesn't really sound like something they let you have if you work for the president. So, can we have it be something else? Seriously, I think I, I, I think you might be wrong about that. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. I don't think you are. I know that, that I'm, I'm giving you cocky answers. I Listen, should be. You know, you want me to talk about my feelings? No, I don't, Josh. The last thing I want you to do is talk about your feelings. I think if you heard a tape recording of this day, you wouldn't hear the word feelings. What we need to get you to do is be able to remember the shooting without reliving it. And you have been reliving it. We have polling that indicates that if Johann Sebastian Bach were alive today, he would have voted for me. Right? It happened during the Christmas party. I'm not trying to give you cocky answers. I'm really I worried. am the guy you tell, Josh. It happened at the Christmas party. The box suite in G major. Please join me in welcoming Yo-Yo Ma. Josh. I was fine. Josh. It was the Bach G major. It's a nice piece. It is. Did he play it well? It's Yo-Yo Ma. I've never heard him in person. That's oh, really... It's really quite something. I, I really like the way they play this scene out, to be honest. The, the point of showing Josh's response to the what was going on at the Christmas party is Stanley's recognised what his, uh, at least some of his triggers are for throwing him back into the circumstance of the shooting, which is the music. And there's been other incidents throughout the week or the, the last couple of weeks where music's been going on and it's it's started Josh tightening up and, and trying to prevent his response from getting out of control. But because he can't control that panic response, the panic response is a very, it's a very primal thing. Once it's kicked in, sometimes literally all you can do is let it ride out. The more you try and hold it back, the worse it will get in some circumstances. And the aftermath of what's happened in this particular scenario is that that feeling of being back in the shooting environment, back in the in the place where he was you know, shot and nearly died, it builds up Josh's fight or flight response and he just wants to get away. 
and how the the true story of how he cut his hand ends up coming out they don't they don't say this explicitly in words but basically the way it's framed visually this pain and panic has built up and built up in in Josh and when he got back to his apartment he just had a moment of needing to get away and so he smashes his win- the window with his hand because he just needs in that moment what i was seeing there was he just needs air he just needs to feel that he can break out of this this space which is making him feel very very trapped Mm. and the fact that stanley is able to piece that together and explain to josh what that response is all about there's something that I think gets underestimated a lot in therapy and that is the healing power of somebody saying to you somebody educated who knows what they're talking about saying to you you are not crazy there is a logic to your reaction Mm. it might be more intense than maybe it needs to be it might be inappropriate for the circumstances in which it's coming out but the way your brain is responding to what's happening to you is completely normal. It is doing exactly what it is supposed to do. It's yeah. just that something's causing it to be unhelpful to you in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it comes back to this thing, which there's, there's, and it could just be to do with the, the, the things that I tend to listen to and the stuff that I tend to be interested in learning around um, therapy, but there is more and more that seems to be being said at the moment about the fact that we are ultimately still trying to run away from the tiger that wants to eat us. And we, we may not live in that environment anymore, but our brains don't know that. And so when we come up against things which in, in normal everyday life shouldn't get that kind of, of uh, emotional response from us, it doesn't matter. Your brain doesn't recognize that your boss giving you grief doesn't need the same kind of response as, mm-hmm. you know, tiger over the hill, run away now, or mm-hmm. your anxiety over resources. Your response these days is fill in paperwork and try and get support. It's not build up enough anger and active impulses to go out and hunt food, which Mm. is what our nervous system is trying to tell us to do. And so all of these responses that from a biological perspective are completely natural, completely normal, are in an environment where they appear miscalculated and and, and inappropriate for the circumstances, but they're not, they're not really. And And that division between here is how I feel, here is how I'm supposed to feel, this discrepancy is what so much of therapy is is trying to help people resolve mm. and i think mm. this is is really a, a great example of, of doing that and doing it well yeah the, the way he yeah. explains trauma treatment which is like we want you to remember we just don't we, we, without reliving it is exactly is yeah. possibly the most succinct way i've ever heard explained and and the power of labeling a diagnosis you know there's a lot of discussion around oh you know uh we shouldn't label people and and we shouldn't label things and blah blah blah. but i I can tell you firsthand as a clinician the power of labeling someone's cluster of symptoms as you've got post-traumatic stress disorder this is what post-traumatic stress disorder is it's come from this thing and and i mean there's grief obviously attached with that and you sort of see josh kind of like trying to negotiate the the diagnosis down to something something better um 
Mm-hmm. He, he goes really childlike with that as well. Mm-hmm. Did you notice? Yeah. That he does. He goes into a little boy voice. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And 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 the, and the therapist is is sort of acting like a dad. It doesn't really like this is it. And I think actually, you know, giving. You know, giving giving a diagnosis to someone's can be pretty hard. You know, particularly something like mm-hmm. as complex as PTSD or personality disorder. You know, you don't really like they're difficult things to treat. So, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people when they hear a diagnosis, it can feel quite accusatory, mm-hmm. and it can be difficult to come to terms with a, a statement that kind of makes you feel like you're being like you say, but you're, you're being labelled with a specific thing and that's therefore going to make people intensify their judgment about you. But the way I tend to see diagnoses and, and when it comes to psychological issues as well, diagnoses aren't set in stone. This might be the thing that, that we're going to, you know, it might be this is what we're dealing with right now. Once some of that's been filtered off, there may be other things that you, you need to look at. But the way I tend to see them is it tells you which toolbox to start with where to look for the group of, of, you know, techniques or approaches or or things that that might help you to deal with some of those symptoms. But by having diagnostic labels, you can sort out the massive array of tools that there are into these are the things that have worked really well for people who have a similar issue to you. So start with those, see what works, keep what works for you. Anything that doesn't, that's fine. You don't have to use them. It's not a fixed cut and dried thing, but it gives you a place to start. It gives you a place to look for what can I use to help myself? Where can I go for support? Peer group support is is massive. Being able to connect with people who've had similar experiences can be huge. And you need to know what label to put on those experiences in order to find that. I think this particular label is probably one of the ones or anything using the big scary T word is one that comes up (laughs) the most in, in my work. And working with kids, it's often... It's often the parents who have the reaction that's most like Josh's about this can't be what's going on with, you know, my kid, but also the kids do as well. And what, what I like about this scene and what feels really realistic to me is that feeling of presenting the information and being quite direct about it and that hearing that information can trigger people when they hear it. For some people, it's a relief of like, you finally acknowledge this thing. But for others, they do start dissociating like Josh. And usually you come out the other side of that session of them going, shit, that actually is, that is what was going on. And there's sort of the beginning of acceptance and things like that. But there's, you sort of have to introduce it gently and then make sure you're containing things and doing things like what Stanley does where he says Josh's name a few times to try and stop him dissociating, mm-hmm. to sort of try and, and ground things and keep things steady because just labelling it can be a trigger and can be overwhelming for people. Let's move to our... Oh, I feel very conflicted Donnie about Darko. this clip. <laughs> Donnie Darko. Um, so the therapist's mm. name's Dr. Lillian Thurman, client's Donnie. Yeah. Um, Sharon, did you want to give us a very brief introduction? Or do you want okay, to just... so um, I don't want to go too much into what the film is about as a whole because I don't think it's that relevant to the, um, the, 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 the thoughts 
capital T thoughts that I have about his therapist. <laughs> um, but um, but basically, this is it's set in the late eighties, and Donny is a teenager who has been diagnosed with. I don't know what he'd be diagnosed with in in the modern era, but he's certainly been diagnosed in a way that feels very stressful in in the era that he's in. People seem to think that he is uh, in in some ways psychotic. He certainly has uh, hallucinations. He's on very strong medication. And his therapist, who has various interactions with both him and his parents, decides that she's going to try a method of therapy that she doesn't seem to be wildly experienced at. I want to talk about you and your parents. They didn't buy me what I wanted for Christmas. What did you want for Christmas that year? Hungry, hungry hippos. How did you feel being denied these hungry, hungry hippos? Regret. What else makes you feel regret? That I did it again. You did it again? I fled at my school and I burned down that pervert's house. <laughs> I only have a few days left before they catch me. Did Frank tell you to do these things? I have to obey him. He saved my life. I have to obey him or I'll be left all alone. And then, and then I won't be able to figure out what this is all about. I won't be able to know his master plan. Do you mean God's master plan? Do you now believe in God? I have the power to build a time machine. All right, do you want to kick us off with your capital T thoughts? <laughs> okay, so, right, first off, <laughs> um, the the way this scene comes about is that she's starting to struggle with helping Donny to progress, and the therapy sessions they've been having aren't going very well. So she brings up the idea of hypnotherapy. She doesn't really explain the process to him, there's a what I would see personally as a lack of informed consent. Um, ultimately, there is the fact that he is legally a minor and she doesn't get either full understanding from him or his parents before going into this. She doesn't seem to be that well versed in the technique. She's She kind of gets him into a trance state with relative ease, but she seems extremely uneasy herself about the things that he starts to discuss. She seems very uncomfortable about, there's a few things that he brings up that obviously make her kind of surprised and not knowing how to respond, which because he's not fully in control of his responses, I mean, he... He kind of should be because hypnotherapy is not the way it's generally portrayed, which is that you're you're completely out of control of your own self and, and the person that you're with has total dominion over your behavior, which is not the case. But he is certainly, his boundaries are down. His ability to say, for example, refuse to answer a question, that resistance is minimized when you're in a hypnotic trance. So she's 
it almost feels like she's taking advantage of him but at the same time she's putting herself in such an uncomfortable position i couldn't work out why it's like was was this really worth it and the speed the speed with which she goes to it's god isn't it that's the problem that's god we need you to believe in god and i'm like will you please drop the god thing it's not helping um, yeah, don't don't yeah, yeah, yes don't talk about your own religious beliefs in therapy just exactly not exactly. as a therapist and it, it, uh, almost, it almost felt to me in that moment like the whole point of her giving him this therapy has been to get him to come around to the idea that god is in charge of everything that he does and he should just let go of the idea of free will which is just so antithetical I, to everything i just like um, is is there even evidence based for like hypnotherapy and psychosis like i'm not <sighs> I think, honestly, the fact that they even, it's even um, not a good idea to get people with psychosis issues into something like mindfulness, because mm. you're you're relaxing the boundaries over those, that mental state more than you can potentially handle. So yeah, I think I would say hypnotherapy in this circumstance is a really bad idea, but she goes there anyway. And then to cap it all off, after all of this series of, of ethical and um, uh, self-competence assessment errors, she then allows, like it becomes pretty obvious a little bit further into the session that Donnie is in some degree of distress but she just lets it go she just lets it carry on he's in it he's in a state where he's getting very very upset he's regressed himself to a very young age and she doesn't I mean she she kind of tries to comfort him but it's almost like she does it in such a way that she's trying to comfort the six-year-old rather than bringing mm. him back to his mm. to himself so that he can get more of a handle on the situation and then they get to a point where he gets up and he moves around the room and she's just kind of following him around the room and then she ends up going to embrace him again as if she was comforting a child and then she does the clap to bring him out of the, the <laughs> trance state while they're in that position that is literally going to cause him the maximum amount of confusion and distress that you possibly could you couldn't even get him back to the sofa and then wake him up you know it's just like this is just this whole session is just to me everything wrong with you you're a trained professional woman what are you doing yeah yeah no. i don't think she's got any idea what she's doing mm. and like there's there's the big issues like that like how she comforts him like how she's obviously doing something that she's not competent to do and then there are little things about that scene that really irritate me and you know the first one is how she reflects back about the hungry hungry hippos. these like, hungry you know, hungry Alex hippos that immediately he was like can you at least keep the contempt out of your voice when you're talking about the hungry, yeah. hungry hippos <laughs> and then in terms of like she seems unsettled by the idea that there's some sort of risk going on that she needs mm -hmm. to assess but then she doesn't assess it in a way where you can actually figure out what's going on like you never ask a kid is x happening because so and so told you to you ask open exploratory questions yeah. to actually otherwise find out you're, you're the leading risk. the client yeah. exactly and kids and kids useful. will try to because they often kids want to please the person who's asking them the questions yep. if you ask them something direct chances are they're going to say yes yeah exactly mm. so it's like she's ineffectual as well as panicking mm. and incompetent Yes. And it just—I mean, it's, it's, it, I guess it's a—it's a different from the usual take of the unethical but impactful and helpful. This is the unethical and unhelpful therapist. I mean, it's it's an interesting. I mean, just as a note on psychosis and sort of the the sort of the, uh, for want of a better term, disordered way 
that people with with psychosis and schizophrenia and things like that the the way that they think you know so he he says oh you know i didn't get these the hungry hungry hippos what was the feeling oh it was regret it's like well and and she says oh you know what else would you what else makes you feel regret now which seems like the stupidest question you know i'd be asking like well what do you mean regret because actually regret is the wrong emotion to mm. or you would need to explain you like i'd be wanting to know well why is it regret like you know so the standard i have as a therapist is i know that i've hit the right thought or the right image that someone's having if i had the same thought and i would feel the same way is that it's the kind of thing like so it's like oh and so if i if i felt you know if i if i didn't get hungry hungry hippos would i feel regret well, I don't know. Probably not. So I need to ask a question about that. Like, you know, she's she's not there. So, and I think just sort of on that thing about, you know, delving into the sort of the psychotic world with someone is, I think there's a, some areas, some people I think believe, oh, you know, that'll be a useful process for somebody. But actually it, it can be so, for want of a better word, again, disordered that it's actually not going to be a helpful process at all for anybody. So, yeah, I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> But I don't think she does either. No. Um, one of the the other reason that I wanted to um, to bring this clip actually, and is that Catherine Ross, who plays the therapist here, and uh, Faye Dunaway, who was the therapist in the Thomas Crown Affair clips, are actresses who were in their younger days were quite adored as romantic leads, and it did intrigue me the idea of women being cast in therapeutic roles later in their life and what benefit or what preoccupation there might be within media therapy, within TV and movie therapy, of having a a lady therapist as a maternal surrogate for clients, which is almost a direct contrast with what people may be thought of psychiatric stereotypes as being back in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, which was the masculine, highly educated desk, couch, very Freudian type of, of, of imagery. And there seemed to me to have been a bit of a move away from that towards this more nurturing and caring and feminine energy to it. And Amy, you said something really interesting about client perception of, uh, of that relationship. Yeah, that often that is what plays out or that clients expect a certain dynamic from a female therapist versus a male therapist. Mm. You know, they, they come to a female therapist with a different mindset and certainly when working with young people, they often put me in the position of a mother figure, mm. uh, whether that's where I'm intending to sit or not. Yeah. That sort of just plays out mm. uh, as a surrogate mother figure or as someone who can provide that kind of support and in a way that's built into therapy you know there's aspects of you know limited reparenting of clients and providing a secure safe place for them to disclose things but it is interesting in movies and tv that you mainly see that with women you don't see so much of the fatherly kind of perspectives of men yeah should we go to Fleabag? Mm-hmm. This is Amy's clip. Amy, did you uh, tell us about Fleabag? So Fleabag is a British TV show about a young woman who is quite sort of hapless. Lots of things have gone wrong in her life. She has a very critical 
family. We never actually hear what her name is, so we'll be referring to her as Fleabag. And this clip comes from a first session with therapist. She's been given a voucher for therapy by her father for her birthday, and this is their first session. Excuse me, I've got dry forearms. Sure. So why have you come to the session? Uh, it was a birthday present for my father. Is that a joke? No. It would be good not to make jokes in here, just in case anything gets lost in humorous translation. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Is that a joke? No. Just try not to make it very obvious. Sure. So why do you think your father suggested you come for counselling? Um, I think because my mother died and he can't talk about it. And my sister and I didn't speak for a year because she thinks I tried to sleep with her husband. And because I spent most of my adult life using sex to deflect from the screaming void inside my empty heart. I'm good at this. Although I don't really do that anymore. You close with your family? <laughs> we get on with it. Do you talk? God, no. Any friends? Sorry? Any friends? Um, no, I don't really have time for... Well, I have a guinea pig, but she blows hot and cold. <laughs> Not a joke. Tell me about the sex. <laughs> All of it? You said you don't do that now. Oh, no, I just play tennis now. Tough crowd. Sorry. I just... Sex didn't bring anything good, so I'm, I'm trying not to, but I've... And what have you found in your abstinence? Well, I'm very horny, and your little scarf isn't helping. So the impulse is still there? Oh, yeah, the, the impulse is, the impulse is very much still there. It's just never the right person. Mm -hmm. So there is a particular person you're not having sex with? No. no. Well, nothing's happened. I just... He's not available. In a relationship? Yes, a bad one. Okay. How so? It's a sort of relationship where one partner tells the other how to dress. Are you in love with him? No. <laughs> Why do you find that funny? Well, I... I don't know. I, I just... I don't... No. It's not romantic? No. Just... A girl with no friends and an empty heart. By your own description. I have friends. Oh, so you do have someone to talk to. Yeah. Do you see them a lot? Oh, they're... <laughs> they're always there. They're... They're always there. Why do you find that funny? Listen, I don't need to be analysed. I have a nice life. I just... I just wanted to exchange the voucher for the money. It's a bit late for that now. I've only been here five minutes. I want the money. I want to fuck a priest. Catholic? Yes. A good one? Yes. Looks good in the... Uh... Mm, yes. I understand. Do you really want to fuck the priest, or do you want to fuck God? Can you fuck God? Oh, yes. Look, just, just please tell me how to not fuck a priest before I get arrested. Well, I don't think fucking a priest will make you feel as powerful as you think it will. Can you just tell me what to do? You know. 
You already know what you're going to do. Everybody does. What? You've already decided what you're going to do. So what's the point in you? You know what you're going to do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I don't. You do. <laughs> um, I had a bit of a push-pull with this one. <laughs> I, I thought she was, she was a really good portrayal. I liked the performance of it. I absolutely love the show, Fleabag. Mm. With regards to how this therapist, the way she opens was actually the thing that I had the biggest issue with. She literally starts the session with, don't joke in this room. Yeah. Don't use humour in this room, which, if you know Fleabag at all, <laughs> you know that is like that's her defence mechanism. That is that is how she everything in her life she sees through this lens of humour, and obviously part of that is the fact that it's a it's a black comedy show, and that's that's the point of it. But I think to open with a new client with such a strict stripping down of not not even knowing whether that's their defense mechanism or not just saying to them that's not going to work in here don't yeah. use it honestly if i was her client and she said that to me i would probably go stuff the voucher stuff the money and get up and leave because that's we're not going to be able to communicate if that's <laughs> if that's the rule you're laying down so yeah that was the the thing that i probably had the biggest issue with <laughs> yeah same I, do, I don't like that she rolls it out and it's interesting though because there are there are moments of humor in the session regardless but yeah. It, yeah, it's not something that i would ever rule yeah. out because you can you can bring that in once somebody started communicating and it becomes apparent that that is a thing they do mm. you can bring that gently to their attention and let them explore well why do i do that yeah. what's that mm. protecting yeah. me from i'm i'm you if i'm using this with every sentence even the things that really ought to be sad why am i doing that them figuring that out for themselves is a lot more helpful in my mind than just saying don't do that yeah i was gonna say i, I had an experience where i had a patient and i figured out that he was he would always make me laugh and so i just said what's that about i said i love seeing you like it's great to see you because you always make me laugh what's that about how can we do that and uh, and then we had the most interesting conversation after that so it's a bit you know is that wrecking you know the the psychologist is the behavioral scientist we observe behavior and pick up stuff you know so like closing that down interest it's an interesting choice i don't know you're like i don't think i'd do but it also... but I've got quite a few clients in the past and currently who will use humor and it's a pretty common defense mechanism for teenagers and, and kids, but it's always informative as well. When you've got sessions where they're using it more, that always gives me a hint to go, Hey, we're having lots of jokes today. Has something happened this week? Or is there something that we've talked about that's pushed a button that, you know, we need to, we need to talk about and usually it is usually there's something they're avoiding talking about and they're trying so hard to avoid it it just it's not working <laughs> they're trying to suppress it so firmly but I think apart from the humor stuff I quite like how direct she is mm -hmm. and initially I found it jarring but then Fleabag is quite direct and you know at the start of the clip she tries to provide a lot of core information about herself a sort of summary of her issues in a way that has that feeling of like, I'm just going to fling this out there and then you won't ask any more questions. And so the therapist being blunt and challenging kind of matches it. But I 
I don't think that I would be that blunt or that challenging in a first session. Mm. You know, I, I might sort of store it away for later, not perhaps that strongly. It feels like it feels like you've got to be very confident as a therapist, as an individual, to be able to do that. And what's interesting, I think, you know, at the start, I think she's like moisturizing her arms and comes across as quite dopey. And then she, you know, she's formulating extremely quickly. So formulation's that thing we do, therapists do, where we pick what's going on and then you challenge, right? You, you She gets a nub, nub of the problem. And, you know, I, I quite like that. Well, you know what you're going to do, you know, which is a challenging statement. Now, I, I'm unsure as to whether the therapist actually believes that or not, I, but I think it's... It's I, the way she closes. She totally cops out when Fleabag challenges her on it. She she just kind of backs off. And like, uh, you're talking about The Matrix? It's right there. You know what you want to do. You've come to me because you want to understand mm, it. You want to understand the choice. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But then I think, but then also like I was wondering like, is it that you want to understand the choice or is it that she's like she she's wanting to get Fleabag to bring up the, the conflict within her, which is you know, she's got genuine conflict. She wants to not do this thing. She can sort of say she's saying she doesn't want to she doesn't want to go and sleep with this guy. Um, yeah. And I also do like it's very subtle, but, you know, the back and forth once there's the, you know, I want to fuck the priest and then there's the really quick back and forth. And then she asks the you know, do you want to fuck God? Which seems like an odd question, but actually, I think it's it's a, a good therapy technique of you ask a question that you think the ther- the, the patient's going to disagree with, and so you know where the limit is, right? So the classic thing you do if you're assessing someone's alcohol usage is you sort of say, oh, you know, I don't know what you call twenty four cans of beer. We call them slabs in Australia, Sharon. But I don't know what you, you call them slabs over there. I don't there. know that I have enough experience 24 <laughs> cans of beer in one go to know that there's a word for them. <laughs> well anyway uh, um i i know obviously we know strands we, we call things odd things but the the classic thing i know, referred to a tinny the other day and um my kid went nuts <laughs> they were like what does that word even mean said, no don't use that word <laughs> don't use I'm that like, word no, 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 that's what they call a can of beer in australia that's it tinny <laughs> tinny mate um it's also like a little uh, metal boat that you, you you don't really want to go riding on. The uh, but she said, but you know, if you're asking someone about their alcohol usage, you say, oh, you know, so how much do you drink? You know, you drink daily. Oh, okay, what like you know, like a, a slab of beer a night, or like you know, whatever, which is you know, a huge amount. Now, most people, even if they're alcoholics, won't drink that much, and so it's very easy for some to say, oh, no, 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 it's only twelve beers or something. It's it's much easier for them to answer a lower number. And so if you go high, they're more likely to then counter with the truth. Yeah, so it's, it's like a, it's, it's a subtle therapy technique, but it's actually extremely useful. So I think that that's sort of what goes on. And, she, and, then, and then what happens is like, so it goes up, 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 and then no, no, hang on back. We're down here at this point. And then this is a discussion. I do I do like the back and forth and I think she does demonstrate that I, I think there's something in common and listening to your um, previous shows on um, Sykes on film there's something that all the therapists that you seem to respond very positively to have in common which is the ability to observe how the client communicates and mm. what level the client communicates at mm. and then match that and mm respond to them and meet them at the level that they're on and then once you've got the relationship established then you start to to move that Mm. around and Mm. and sort of see where it goes so i i do really like the way she is able to engage and there there are 
similarities between them and this was another one that made me think is there a little bit of the maternal dynamic going on there because mm -hmm. the way the therapist comes across she does feel like she could almost be an older version of Fleabag and so is it possible that she's seeing a little bit of her relationship with her mother in there and, and responding to that, mm. um, which is obviously something that she's been absent quite some time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that side of things I really did appreciate in the in the back and forth mm. and the, the way that they related to each other. Definitely. Mm. OK, last clip. This is my last clip, one. My clip um, Bones. So I'm I, I'm not actually a big Bones fan, but I must have just caught this episode one time and must have, and happened to see a therapy scene. So so the therapist is Gordon Wyatt, who's played by Stephen Fry, and the client is Sealy Booth. So he's a uh, police officer, FBI agent, someone, and he was holding, trying to rescue his friend who was hanging, dangling from a ledge, and he's holding him from his hands and. And he slipped out and died. And then sometime later, the, the, the character had discharged his firearm in public. And so the, he's then had a site come and assess him for the day. And this is a, a clip right at the end of the day where he's been a bit bumbling, the therapist, and been sort of annoying this police officer. And then uh, they're kind of getting to the nub of the problems here. Oh, my goodness. No. Right. <laughs> How many bricks did you use in the end? You know, 180. Right, so you can go sign away. What are those? Oh, those are two beautiful prime ribeye steaks. All right, being the barbecue master that I am, I thought I'd show you how to barbecue, Doc. Oh, but I don't want to be shown. I want to learn by trial and error. No, 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 Doc. Come on, listen, it's better to learn off hamburgers or sausages. You know, those puppies cost 50 bucks a pop. Hmm. You know, According to the FBI reports, there was no way you could save Epps life. Your partner's report says the same thing. An FBI sniper on the opposite roof saw everything through his scope. According to all witnesses, you have nothing to feel guilty about. Yeah, so? So why, in a fit of pique, did you endanger innocent people in a public thoroughfare by discharging your firearm? I'm a good shot. I didn't put anybody in danger. Your file shows you're a military sniper. How many people have you killed? I lost count. Oh, you can remember 180 bricks, but not how many lives you've taken? Reps makes 50. 50 what? 50 kills. But Agent Booth, you didn't kill Epps. You tried to save him, remember? Well, perhaps I'd better put it as a question. Did Howard Epps slip from your grasp, or did you release him? Now, man, it's a simple enough question. Was he indeed your 50th kill, or did you just happen to be there when he died? I don't know. A man like you, in control of every situation, and you don't know? I don't know. had him and then I lost him and then something happened in between I don't know I believe you because for a man like you to admit you don't know to relinquish control that could indeed argue a 
disruption in your self-view that was blood enough to motivate you to shoot a clown? You know, I think we made marvellous progress. This is a place from which we can certainly begin. You know what? I've changed my mind. I would love you to cook those steaks. Ever done, uh, ever done therapy over a barbecue? I don't think I've done that. <laughs> I was no. just thinking there is a tendency in uh, screen therapy to try and have it done in an environment that's not a therapy room. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be tempted to try and give somebody therapy close to flammable objects. <laughs> you know, just in case. Just, yeah, just, just safety. <laughs> just safe, safety is yeah. key. Ah. No fire, no sharp objects. It's, it's like my one rule. <laughs> <laughs> Why this clip, Panda? Uh, I think what I like about it is it shows a therapist going in for the kill. I think you know. I think like the going into you know he really turns and is really tough on this client in a way that's really really challenging and it's it's has its echoes in cognitive challenging and in cognitive challenging of negative thoughts, maladaptive thoughts or, or, or negative beliefs. You know, really what he's doing is challenging guilt there. And I really like that way of using what someone has said or done at, to then challenge them about something else, which is, you know, which is the, you don't know how many people have killed, but you could remember how many bricks were in the barbecue that you just made. Like that doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make sense to me. Explain it. And, and being really firm and then he sort of makes him say you know 50 kills like this this is the classic example i think of 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 therapists you know of therapists being not nice people at times you know like we have to be pretty tough at times and you know i think hollywood gets it wrong a lot of the time with uh you know they kind of urge more into that than i think actually happens but you know this is a great example of and I've had a couple of sessions where, you know, you've been dealing with a trauma, a guilt about something that's happened. And, you know, you're saying, you know, but, you know, you did everything. The, the evidence is that you did everything, you know, and, and you know, guilt is a, a wasted emotion, you know, which it doesn't serve any purpose. It doesn't actually help us. And this guilt is not helping this person, right? And, you know, and then it gets down to that issue of control and, 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 what's going on there so i think i think it's i think that's really what i like about it i think one thing he does which i i agree hunter i think it it seems as though he's being a little bit harsh and a bit overly confrontational but in the context um there's an element of particularly people who've been in the military or have been in in some kind of I mean, there's a range of organizations and, and um, industry mindsets that, that this can fall under, but law enforcement or government or something like that, where there's this feeling of if somebody's not in the family, you don't open up to them. And one way of being able to kind of release those feelings a little bit is to behave in a way that they're familiar with from 
superior officers or managers or something like that. It's it's a bit you have to be careful with it because it is manipulative ultimately and it, it, it can backfire quite heavily. But I think it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about the way Stanley meets Josh in Noel. If he didn't go in there able to have the confidence and the authority to say to Josh, I'm as smart as you are you can tell me these things it's okay i can handle it then they are going to feel like you couldn't you couldn't actually bear the things that i am going to need to tell you about if this is if this is going to help they have to feel like whatever they're able to say you've got the strength to handle it and because that's how they recognize strength if you can use that to show them that you have that ability to hold whatever it is they want to bring you're going to get a better result from that than if you may be a little bit more soft and gentle and and how you might approach somebody who comes from a more civilian background and doesn't Mm. have that kind of very regimented experience so i think from from that angle although he doesn't seem to be a military therapist himself he does kind of bring that energy to it a little bit, which I think is it gets that positive response out of him. So, yeah, I, I liked that. I also noticed as well at the very end, he almost he rewards him with, OK, you've opened up and you've told me the thing that I wanted you to tell me. So now I'm going to let you have your moment of competence back. I'm going to let you do the thing that's going to make you feel in control and like you know what you're doing so that you can reorient yourself and get back to feeling like like yourself it's it's almost like um you might do if somebody's had a particularly energy draining or or particularly emotional session you might do something in the last five minutes to kind of ground them and bring Mm. them back to a more of a normal state of mind before we let them walk out the Mm. door it almost feels like that but he's adapted it to the fact that they're (laughs) standing over a barbecue rather than in a therapy room they they did look like good steaks that's for sure yeah they did he the, the thing I was also quite like about him, maybe he speaks to like I had a, I had a, uh, my first clinical supervisor was a British supervisor. So maybe there's, um, maybe there, there, maybe there's a, a, a transference going on. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but I just, I, I, I like, I like the way that this therapist is just themselves, right? They, 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 he's doing exactly what he wants to do and he's, not impressed by what's going on, but he's not dismissive, you know, like, you know, so there's, there's some therapists that are portrayed and you will see in life who are dismissive. He's not, he's just like, you know, this is who I am and I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing my job. And, and, you know, and I think a, a, a theme that's been running throughout this whole episode that we've been talking about is, you know, it's, it's the ability of a therapist to build rapport and build a relationship and then do the work. And then we're all different. All th- you know, I mean, the three of us here, we're all therapists. I imagine we all go about our work in different ways. Um, but, but at the core of that, the crux of that is that, that building that rapport. Once you have that relationship with somebody, you can do just, just the most amazing things in therapy with somebody. But I mean, like, you know, therapy, we... In, in the way that they're often portrayed, therapists is often they're often like blank slates, or or they're the the creative unboundaried type. But you know, so there's these black and white dichotomies. But I think you know something Amy and I were talking about in the lead up to this pod is that you know people often expect us to be one of those things, but actually we're really really different. You know, every single therapist is different. And every client's experience of therapy is going to be different as well because three people can go to the same therapist and get a different experience 
with each one because it's it's not just about who you are as a client and who the therapist is as a as a therapist it's about what then gets built between the two of you and that is going to be unique to every single relationship amy did you have something can you tell us about cinema therapy before we wrap up because neither of us are familiar with it i can okay so um basically there's a couple of different ways of approaching cinema therapy and one is from the point of view of like a prescriptive method so if a client is experiencing grief and that's the thing that you're counseling them for recommending films that have grief as the core theme that they could then go away and watch on their own time and and kind of use as a a way of processing what they're feeling the other way the way that that i'm actually inclined more towards is to use a movie as like point of reference in order to explore whatever issues the the client wants to talk about so in particular the way i do the the focus movie therapy is the client chooses a film because again from the person-centered angle it needs to come from them so the client chooses a film that they already feel particularly connects with an issue that they're they're dealing with that they're they're trying to address and then we would use the session because again it's it's a single session um, type of therapy to explore why that might be okay let's look at the characters which characters do you feel a particular connection with why might that be what in them do you relate to what in them do you aspire to or is there a character that you maybe feel pushed away from okay why might that be is it something that you see in yourself in them that you're trying to get away from is it somebody you know another relationship in your life that they might remind you of and then you might look at things depending on on how much the the client has already worked out about how they feel about the film you might look at things like theme so uh, as an example i had a client who wanted to talk about the lord of the rings trilogy and how that related to their own feelings of nostalgia and they we we got quite a lot out of of that as a, a theme conflation or if they don't if it's not specifically the themes of it it might be the type of film that is particularly visually stimulating there might be colors and set direction and things that they they feel that they have a particular emotional response to so okay let's talk about that let's explore that and i think one of the reasons why it it appeals to me so much is i've i've got kind of i have so much history and background in looking at like literature analysis and you know even even going back as far as when i did my degree which was in english literature and and drama and media it was all sort of that's the thing that's always fascinated me look at this contained boundaried piece of of fiction what within those boundaries can we take from metaphor from imagery symbolism and how can we relate that to a particular situation that we're trying to address from a a therapeutic perspective so it was really sort of taking that interest in seeing the patterns in story and adding that to a more broad um, idea of of therapy and counselling and then sort of seeing the ways that that can fit together and I think one of one of the key tenets of of cinema therapy is that film has a way of getting to us on an emotional level 
that other things just don't have in part because it, it assaults you on multiple levels <laughs> when you're watching a movie you've got you know you your visual senses are engaged your audio senses are engaged either because there's speech or because there's music or there's sound effects you've got your cognitive part of your brain is both absorbing what's going on on the screen and you know trying to see patterns in what's going on around the themes and you you know if you if you think particularly deeply about movies which hello i have a tendency to do <laughs> then you you might be doing that all the time when you're watching films anyway so it's it's really sort of i suppose it's an expansion of looking at your dreams and seeing what how that might relate to how you're feeling about something mm. but you're going to a uh pre-packaged makes it sound like it's less valuable and that's not the case at all but an art form that somebody else has created that you connect with very very strongly and then using that as almost like a mirror to then explore and reflect what what feelings that brings up in you and it's fascinating i love it i absolutely love it it sounds it sounds very um i was gonna say dynamic but not in the uh, psychodynamic way but you know like a really creative way of, of using it. And it's interesting you brought up dreams because I did a lot of cinema study in, in my undergraduate, much to my parents' chagrin. But um, uh, I got a job as a cinema projectionist out of it, so that, that worked well. But the um, but in cinema studies, they talk about, you know, there is that psychoanalytic reading of films and they often talk about them. They're like, you know, they're dreamlike and that they have this whole sort of thing around, you know, you're not in control of the images and you have emotions and, and uh, you have emotions to them. And, and yeah, certainly... You know, I, I, the, the, I think the scene that came to mind that always sort of almost brings me to tears every time is just the end of Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the, the ocean blue will, and then that, that little monologue. Movies are very powerful in a way that people who are guarded in their world, not. That kind Absolutely. Of and it can be it can be so valuable for people who do have that sort of layer of self-protection around them. And being able to explore something that feels like it's a little bit detached from you mm-hmm. it didn't come from you and therefore it's safer for you to explore it's not as raw as it might be to go directly to your own personal emotions and and that can open things up that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise talk about it can also be really useful for people who have difficulties with um, with social communication as well sometimes people don't have the language to talk about their emotions but they can talk about why I don't know, they can talk about why Neo feels sad in The Matrix. That they can make sense of and that they can they can put into words because it's a bit safer. And so it has, it, you know, it can have massive value from that perspective as well. I was thinking how much it reminds me of, you know, whenever I'm starting to see a kid or a teenager, I always ask about which TV, movie, books, whatever, are particularly important to them and they watch over and over again they don't know why. And then I go off and watch that thing. And then that always forms part of the initial assessment. And, you know, for, for kids and teenagers, often, like you say, they don't have the words for it. They're not exactly sure why a particular storyline just, you know, feels like a punch in the guts every time. But yeah. often it parallels what's going on in their life. They just haven't joined those dots yet. They just haven't Absolutely. quite Absolutely. figured and- it out for you to go and watch it as well that helps to then create a shared language between you yeah. that you wouldn't have had otherwise exactly and most of the time it's it's pretty doable i you know have had one 
kid who said that they wanted me to read an entire book series that had about 30 books in it. But other than that, you know, <laughs> so like, where are you up to in the next one? Not there yet. (laughs) Send me a link to the Wikipedia entry and has anybody made it into a movie? (laughs) But it is, it it often means that people expose parts of their lives that they weren't quite ready to tell you about directly. So particularly with trauma or loss things, I find that kids will bring up a particular movie or a story that's really important to them they won't be able to tell you that that thing has happened to them yet but they'll Mm -hmm. be able to say I really relate to that character and then you can slowly get there but it's kind of like a testing the waters Mm. function as well of how will you respond to this before I tell you that that's actually me yeah, if you get somebody asking about, you know, have you seen the girl with the dragon tattoo or something like that, then, you know, okay, I think I know what this discussion is going to go. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Fascinating. I mean, it actually reminds me a little bit, Sharon, we, we did an episode just recently on, on The Breakfast Club and how we do therapy with the people in, in the John Hughes film, The Breakfast Club. Yeah. And we had... That was a fantastic episode. Oh, thank you. We, we had a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, it was interesting to see the in the feedback that we got to that show, some people were like really identified with certain people. Whereas like for me, I remember like watching that show and not really identifying that many with that many people but you know it's sort of and i always think that's quite interesting to kind of pull apart well sharon it's been been an absolute pleasure to have you on been lots and lots of fun um lots a <laughs> lot of been detail fantastically fun for me too thank you so much before we go do you want to tell us a little bit about school of movies and if they want to yes. hear more about hear more sharon where do we where do they go absolutely yeah, so um, School of Movies is the regular podcast that I do with my husband, Alex Shaw. He is kind of the, the main host and I'm his co-host for that. And we talk about movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the best way to explain it. Okay, so we, we try to, it's not a review show. What we do is we try to look at a particular film in more depth than than you would normally get on the average review show they can run quite long so Mm. be ready but we we do look at things like character interactions and you know what do these colors mean and what what the themes of the show say politically and things like that so it, it can get very deep we do try though to focus on films that often will get dismissed as like it's just popcorn it doesn't have that stuff in it it doesn't have character depth it doesn't have um you know great overarching themes that we can really explore which um, we personally think is not true and that there's plenty there to look at if you want to get your teeth into um pretty much any movie we've had some interesting experiences with things that just seem really superficial and shallow Mm. but once you get going on them you can um, you can find all sorts of things when you're looking for them Uh, so yeah that's the uh, the school of movies show which is a regular weekly thing the most recent episode was actually one that alex did a while ago um with a, a couple of guests on metal gear solid i wasn't actually on that one but uh, before that we did a, a little known richard curtis film called about time which is 
almost painfully British. It's about time travel and it's got uh, Donald Gleeson and Bill Nye uh, and Rachel McAdams in it. Definitely worth a watch and it was a really good episode. We had a guest on that from a, a podcast about time travel called Jesse Ferguson. So uh, yeah, check that one out and uh, and some of our, our previous episodes. We do a lot of Marvel. We do a lot of blockbusters. It's been tricky recently because there hasn't been a lot of, of mm. big tentpole cinema out there which which tends to be the stuff that we focus on but we have a massive massive back catalogue we've been doing the show together now for about six or seven years and Alex did some of the podcasting with uh, on his own before that so there's a lot to get into so start slow it's okay uh, just yeah. listen to one or two and see what you think I think I started with Highlander on a drive one day and that was oh, that was that just was oh god that was that was I'm like, I have to listen to this that was one of the most enjoyable episodes of the and I think then uh, Google hunting is just a favorite mm. episode of mine I think I was listening to the to the men in black episode you did it's like wow that there was a lot more to those films than I thought there was <laughs> perhaps not the second one anyway Amy you want to take us out yeah thank you so much for listening and Sharon thank you again for speaking to us as always could everyone please rate review the show it helps people find us as ridiculous as that is and we love seeing what you think of the show you can also find us on twitter at two shrinks pod or you can email us two shrinks pod at gmail.com we'll catch you next time see you later